You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I'm Homer, the blind brother. I didn't lose my sight all at once. It was like the movies, a slow fade out. When I was told what was happening, I was interested to measure it. I was in my late teens then, keen on everything. What I did this particular winter was to stand back from the lake in Central Park, where they did all their ice skating, and see what I could see and couldn't see as a day-by-day thing. The houses over to Central Park West went first. They got darker as if dissolving into the dark sky until I couldn't make them out. And then the trees began to lose their shape. And then finally, this was toward the end of the season, maybe it was late February of that very cold winter, and all I could see were these phantom shapes of the ice skaters floating past me on a field of ice. And then the white ice, that last light, went gray, and then altogether black. And then all my sight was gone, though I could hear clearly the scoot-scud of the blades on the ice. A very satisfying sound, a soft sound, though full of intention, a deeper tone than you'd expect made by the skate blades, perhaps for having sounded the resonant basso of the water under the ice, scoot, scut, scoot, scut. I would hear someone going someplace fast, and then the twirl into that long scratch as the skater spun to a stop, and then I laughed too for the joy of that ability of the skater to come to a dead stop all at once, going along scoot, scut, and then scratch. E.L. Doctorow is the author of Ragtime, Billy Bathgate, The Book of Daniel, The Waterworks, World's Fair, and The March. He's received the National Book Award, three National Book Critics Circle Awards, two Penn Faulkner Awards, and the National Humanities Medal. His latest novel is Homer and Langley. Thank you for joining me, Edgar. My pleasure. This is a lovely book, and it strikes me that from the very beginning, you tell us something important about the way you're going to tell the story by virtue of telling us in the first line that our narrator, the man who will give us the vision for the next 200 or so pages, is blind. Yeah, well, um, that all comes out of that first line, which I I wrote down. um, I'm Homer the Blind Brother. Um, Until I did that, I didn't know I was going to write this book. But suddenly there it was, and um, uh, really like the seed for the, for the entire book. It, it's a fascinating beginning. Uh, could you talk about how long had you like, lived with just the, the background story in this, in that, to this novel? Oh, you mean the actual factual clinical sure. uh, record? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, the Collier <clears throat> brothers were... Um, kind of notorious in their time. Uh, They uh, were uh, collectors, aggregators, some people called them pack rats. But what interested me was uh, something aside from the fact that they they were such reclusive eccentrics. And what interested me is why that happened. Because they came from a very well-to-do family their father was a well-known uh, gynecologist in New York. Their mother was an aspiring opera singer. They lived very well in a very handsome brownstone on Fifth Avenue. And yet, when their parents were gone, these two brothers uh, 
went into the house, closed the door, pulled the shutters, and that was it for them. And they became progressively more eccentric. And uh, clearly now we understand that there's a, it's a dis mental disorder uh, uh, called uh, obsessive-compulsive hoarding. In those days, they were just thought of as eccentrics. And I remember as a boy, uh, the, the news broke that they were both found dead. And uh, a thousand people gathered outside the house to watch the police throw out all this junk from the windows. And uh, truckloads of the stuff were driven away. And when the house was empty, it turned out the brothers had no heirs. They neither of them had married no relatives. So the city took possession of the house and tore it down and made a little park there called Collier Brothers Park. And um, a few years ago in the New York Times, I read a piece about the people in this neighborhood, which is a very beautifully uh, kept up neighborhood of brownstones, uh, elegant New York neighborhood. The people objected to calling that park the Collier Brothers Park. So they were still disturbing people 50 years after their death. And I thought, there's a story there. These guys are myth. Uh, they're folklore. And therefore, I can write about them or the idea of them without attending particularly to the clinical nature of this situation. So it would, if the theory was that I had, they had two existences, the mythic existence and the actual clinical existence. I chose the mythic existence. Same thing with Abraham Lincoln, of course, but not quite as exalted. That kind of double existence in the American mind. So I took the position that um, not research but interpretation was required and demanded. And so uh, there it all happened. I'm Homer the Blind Brother and I was off. One of the things that strikes me about this novel is the um, the visionary nature of what you're writing. <clears throat> you you create this world from within that it it's you turn this uh, uh, residence a house into something rather different. It's like a, a river almost in, in which uh, the the classic uh, example you can never put your same your foot in the same river twice. It's not mm -hmm. the same river, you're not the same man. Um, I, I had a similar feeling about halfway through the book because, of course, the world doesn't let them alone. Um, for some reason, they keep getting involved with people uh, as they try to uh, create meaning to their lives. And I didn't think of it as a river coming through. I thought, I thought of it as a kind of road novel that really what was central in the book was this conversation these two brothers were having all their lives, this one conversation, basically. Similarly to uh, if you were writing a picaresque novel, the, the two people traveling along the road and having adventures. Oh, and, and I thought, well, they're more or less housebound, so the road is coming through them. I, I didn't think river, I thought road. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I guess the, my, from my feeling, the river was just the flowing music of the prose. Now, you've written a, a lot of novels, I think, that approach things from without, that get out there and bustle about in the world. And 
in this novel you take an almost inverse approach and I'm wondering how how you how that felt for you as a writer to, to take this approach well it, again it comes out of the first line uh, that Homer in his um, late life is is setting down his memories he's writing a memoir when you do a memoir it seems to me that um, uh, the memory is is a kind of montage except when particular events stand out in your mind and and the emotion the montage gives way to a scene or an episode and um, but it's all very intimate you see because you're in the mind of a blind man who's remembering his life and uh, so the uh, for instance the march is many characters and it's told in third person omniscient third and it covers a lot of space and time and and numerous characters and so that book is sort of spread wide mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, uh, that's like a river if you want to use your river and you know, that's like a river that's overflowed its banks but this is a very um, specifically uh, directed uh, narrative linear narrative uh, tracing the uh, one man's memories he's a really fascinating character and he's, it's really lovely to read his voice. Um, could you talk about creating this particular voice? And did you, as a writer, start to feel like, because as a writer, you're living not in a life that's not dissimilar from, from Homer hmm. uh, Collier. Well, um, this is all done um, without any conscious calculation. Uh, uh, as you're writing along, you you make discoveries you're you're not only the writer you're the instant reader with every sentence that goes down you say oh and you have the same experiences the reader will have oh look look at this look at what's happening here look at what he's just said and um, uh, so it's not it's not a matter of calculation um, what I was aware of uh, there was a, a nice kind of discipline in being able to create images um, on behalf of someone who couldn't see and and to represent what he understood about the world around him without being able to see it and that was a nice discipline to to work that way that that was a kind of controlling thing perhaps that had something to do with the voice I don't know well it strikes me too that this novel is interiorized twice Homer is lives within one place and really doesn't move around much, doesn't go many places. He goes out a couple times. But also, he his own world, by virtue of being blind, is also very internalized. <clears throat> and it strikes me that when you're living this internalized life, this novel reads in some ways almost like a fantasy or a dream because it seems that it's really created by the language. Oh, well, that's interesting. That never occurred to me. Um, I, th I thought of it as a, um, as a <clears throat> attempt to record the real events of his life, uh, and, and awareness of its practical nature. But I like that idea that you've just expressed. That there's, <laughs> they said, well, you know, in all memory, there's a good deal of fantasy. On the other hand, isn't there? But 
people choose to remember and what they uh, do to the memories they have, the embellishment uh, that's involved. But you see, what happens all during the course of the book is that uh, his ability to connect the world becomes narrower and narrower until uh, he's left only with his consciousness, um, which uh, seems to me a very pressing and sad um, condition that um, that might instill fantasy, but uh, more likely grief and horror. <laughs> there really is a an elegiac nature to this. It really feels like a a mournful, plainful song, a death song. And when at one point in the novel, in the novel, he uh, Homer says that he feels his memories have just are becoming detached and kind of floating away yeah, from him. He, he feels that he's using them up somehow, and, and they're becoming uh, less vibrant and visual for him <clears throat> but you know that's the writer's problem who who writes autobiographically that uh, as I did somewhat in one book called World's Fair mm-hmm. that you discover once you write down these personal memories uh, you've lost them there you they don't have the vitality in your mind that they once had and so that's a kind of an analogous thing but I I don't think of this as an entirely sad book. I I think there are a lot of funny things in it. I like Im- the image of Homer and his brother Langley. We haven't mentioned Langley mm-hmm. uh, riding around the city in a in a uh, on a, a, a bicycle built for two. Yeah, it's very well, uh, Lang- Langley is the aggressive collector. He he is goes out every day and gets the morning and the evening newspapers in it time when New York City had a dozen newspapers, seven or eight major dailies in various borough newspapers, and he's collecting them and obsessively, and it turns out, oh, well, Homer thinks there's some sort of ironic thing he's doing. There's a major project Langley is attempting to discover the seminal acts, events of human behavior, and by that means prepare a, a newspaper, one edition, good for all time, one eternally, Collier's eternally current newspaper, and and we won't need any other after that. It will always be valid for any particular day. And and um, Homer accepts <laughs> this this kind of madness with the reflection that it it might simply be uh, Langley's bitterness and despair. Uh, expressed in an ironic way. I think that's sort of funny. And then uh, the tea dance, Langley is always afraid that they're running out of money, so he schedules this tea dance and brings people in the neighborhood in during the Depression, and people shuffle around and gives them little glasses of sherry and charges them a dollar. (laughs) So, uh, and then uh, when the gangsters tie these two men up and leave, and there, there they are in the kitchen of their home in chairs tied together back to back. Uh, Langley delivers this beautiful, I think, account of his own uh, childhood in, a, in a, some sort of religious retreat where that was trying to create the circumstances of heaven, which drove him 
quite crazy. <laughs> it's the Mark Twain version of heaven. You know, one of the things that I thought found really interesting was Langley's eternal uh, newspaper. As I read this, I thought, boy, that's the internet. <laughs> <laughs> well, it might very well be. And, and uh, someone said to me that these guys were aggregators just like Google. <laughs> <laughs> well, they really are. Stanislaw Lem has a a story about what he calls the Extelopedia, which is an, an encyclopedia that automatically updates itself constantly. And I also oh. was reminded of Langley's. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, uh, of course, that's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the things that, that I, I loved about uh, Langley w was his uh, this theory of replacements, which plays into his, his uh, newspaper. He's a uh, a platonic philosopher in a way, and he's looking for those platonic ideals behind the world. Yeah, that that there are these ideal forms and we just fill them in over and over and over. And uh, they, for instance, he talks about the social function of baseball heroes. And uh, home, home, this is the, when they're talking when they were very young, before they developed into what they became. Uh, Langley says, sort of making up as he goes along, that uh, Homer, who's your, who's your favorite um, <coughs> baseball player? Walter Johnson. Well, uh, next generation will have another, will have a replacement for him, just as the bison get replaced even though they're shot in, on the prairie. And, uh, and that turns into the newspaper uh, idea. Yeah, the same thing. It is platonic, you're right, yeah. One of the things that interests me too about this novel, when when I'm done, when I finished re reading it, I thought it's like a beautiful. It captures the core of the entire 20th century, really, uh, from World War One to you know the 1970s, in a beautiful, really compact fashion. It doesn't feel dense, but I feel like you've really captured the 20th century. Yeah, um, it, to me the the. What what would matter would it be personal experience that was involved that was reflective mm -hmm. of of some larger history, and so uh, Langley comes home from World War One gassed and with a, a, a kind of gravelly voice, and that presume that experience presumably would explain his general acerb personality and grim view of life, and. Um, uh, they have Japanese help, who are a couple who are taken away and put in a camp out west, which is what happened to Japanese Americans uh, during World War II. It was a kind of scandalous thing that the administration did, and so on. They, they, they are, oddly enough, very much involved in their life and times. With the, I thought too of it was so brilliant that bringing in the car and having the car in the center of their house, it's like that's the center of American life for much yeah. of the 20th century. Well, um, I don't like to get too symbolic about things, but there is a uh, there's some factual basis for that. Langley did bring in the guts of a and pieces of a, of a Model T Ford, whether he actually had it reassembled in the dining room, as I explained, <laughs> I'm not quite sure. But he, uh, Homer realizes that Langley will collect things thinking they will have some value in the future without 
having an idea of what that value will be. And he always, uh, speaking of replacements, he, if he collects piano in, innards, it would be looking always for the best expression of any particular item, whether it's a toaster or a piano or a car <laughs> or anything else. He, he will keep uh, uh, finding examples of it till he's satisfied, which he never is, with the perfect example of that thing. And so that will explain the, uh, the immense number of uh, inanimate objects that they live with. They, uh, I think I say at one point they, their parents had uh, filled their house with very luxurious, uh, opulent Victorian furnishings. And so they learned very early to live with aggressively inanimate things. It strikes me, too, that they're not just collecting things. They're also collecting people, in a sense. Papers and um, a, lot of, a lot of junk. A lot of junk. Uh, well, all the people who come through their house, kind of, that's, that's another, you know, the memories of these people that, that Homer talks about. The women, the men, the, the gangsters, the, the hippies, everybody. <clears throat> it's a, they're not just collecting things. They're collecting people, too, in a sense. Yeah, uh, and perhaps that would explain Langley's feeling toward the end of their lives, that he had to do something about possible interlopers and prowlers, Mm -hmm. because he understood there was a rumor in the neighborhood that they were keeping a lot of money, he and his brother, in this house. And so he constructs all these traps and snares based on this monumental collection of things, newspaper bales and pieces of machinery, and of course he dies when he trips over one of these things himself and everything falls down on him and poor Homer is left uh, pretty helpless and depend, totally dependent on his brother at this point. And, uh, and so he will die as well. This novel is a, has a, a really beautiful um, idea of change. There's, there's all sorts of change in this novel. At one point, um, I think Homer says that uh, there's you know, evolution and there's anarchy. And, and he, they've experienced both. Uh, he's talking about his own in, in, ineptitude, trying to deal with the uh, problems of the household at the, in the early days mm. when we still have servants. And one of the servants um, comes to his bed, a young Hungarian woman. And although she's the subservient maid, she uses that to lord it over the, uh, the woman who's run the household before. And so there's that reversal. And then Langley comes home from the war, and he's unhappy. And, and the cook is sort of alienated, and Mrs. Robolo, and she serves what she wants to serve. So there's all this dysfunction and Homer decides that the, the, the household is just evolving. It's not falling apart. <laughs> he has the theory that he prefers to accept his own inability to deal with this in any practical way as, uh, as natural evolution that should be left alone. <laughs> They have some interesting relationships with women. Uh, there, there's Julia, you mentioned the Hungarian, ma- Hungarian maid, and then there's Mary Reardon, who who is who has a, a an interesting uh, 
life lifespan in the book. Yeah, there she comes as a piano. Of course, Homer's a pianist, and she comes as a piano student, and they sort of adopt her. She comes from a poor family over in Hell's Kitchen, so uh, she takes a room up on the servant's floor, and the two brothers do fall in love and absolutely cannot express this because it would destroy this very young, beautiful, pure child who's 16 or 17. And she eventually, they, they pay for her uh, to go off to a seminary or a college or something of the sort and, uh, and uh, lose her uh, in ways we, we should let the reader find out. Uh. When we read this book, we're immersed in, in Homer's vision, and it's, it's a really interesting, you know, as you said, it's a combination of there's some humor and, and, and some horror as well. Uh, could you talk about, you know, experiencing this as a writer? You, you said that it sounds like you had to become Homer to a, for a period 500 words a day. Well, it's actually true that you... You remember the Flaubert's famous remark when they asked him uh, where Madame Bovary came from, and he said, uh, "C'est moi, it's me." And uh, I think that's inevitable in all uh, you do project. Uh, you're kind of ventriloquist, but it's you uh, uh, finding a voice that you you, you project into the book. And uh, and you're lucky as a writer if you do find that voice. Some some books it takes a while. Um, uh, I was very lucky with Billy Bathgate. I had that voice of that boy. I knew everything about him within the first paragraph. With the Book of Daniel, uh, it was a little more difficult. I had to write 150 or so pages um, and realize they were not working before I came to the conclusion that not I should be writing this book, but Daniel, the son of this couple that was executed for uh, giving atomic nuclear secrets to the Soviet Union. And uh, so uh, if you do find the voice quickly, as I did very clearly with the first line here, you're a very, very lucky writer. Now, this novel starts out in history as we know it and ends up somewhere slightly different. And I wanted to, to talk to you about that because one thing that's kind of interesting is that there's this dual sense of time in the novel in that we're immersed completely in Homer's world and this kind of flow of thoughts and wandering, drifting almost like, and at one point he does say, they're like ghosts haunting their own house. Um, but there are also these like, things, events from outside that kind of intrude once in a while. Yeah. Talk about uh, those two time streams and, and how you experienced those. Um, two time streams. Would you mind telling me again what the two are? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's Homer's internal clock that, that, that just goes through and, and, and that is one straight line from the, first, from, the opening, from the opening line you write to the end of the book. And, and then there's an, another chronology that's happening outside, the events in the world, and sometimes there are things we can almost recognize. Um, for example, the uh, the the riot, the riots. Well, he, and he's such. processing uh, uh, his 
uh, his own experiences uh, sort of uh, as they come to him through his other senses. Uh, so there is a uh, possible disparity between what actually happens in his memory, but uh, isn't that true of everyone? Uh, there's a kind of a uh, memory is is not exhaustive and it's not complete. It's selective and it's uh, biased. And so that is represents the same thing that's happening in this book. I think would happen with anybody who who set who sets his life down. I mean, I remember with ragtime um, people saying. Uh, you made a fiction of J.P. Morgan that um, he didn't say those things. He didn't do these things. And I pointed out if people really wanted to read fiction about J.P. Morgan, they should read his authorized biography. <laughs> now, yeah, let's talk about that because, you, as you said, I mean, these Collier brothers, they, they, are, they have more longevity than the real Collier brothers did. Um, and I think this is one of the interesting things about the kind of fiction that you write. Uh, using fiction to get closer to the truth than you can with facts. Yeah. Most journalists don't understand that. I'm glad you, you're picking that up. Um, uh, some of the people who've asked me about this book say, well, the, the Connie brothers really died in the 1940s, and you keep them going for another 30, 40 years, and... And I said, well, as myths, as legends, they're immortal. It doesn't matter when anyone extends their life or shortens it, they, they're still there. <laughs> and uh, some people have difficulty with that, uh, with that idea. But um, I do, you know, when you write fiction, um, the presumption is you can get sort of further into uh, that mere facts are not the whole truth by any means and uh, the idea for for instance of objective uh, journalism is itself a myth I think uh, that uh, reporting is very creative uh, I, I think reporters and historians are belong in my camp actually <laughs> I, I, it's just I, a matter of degree mm-hmm I'd say that you get closer to what the the truth uh, of these men were than than a factual account, maybe just by virtue of capturing an emotional core. Well, what interested me was that the, that they did this, not that they were eccentric, but how they got that way. They they opted out, which is. A not unusual American phenomenon. No, no. Um, uh, I mean, the Beats opted out in a very spectacular, self-indicating uh, way. <laughs> but, I like that self-indicating. <laughs> yeah, but the the uh, I mean, uh, Greta Garbo opted out uh, in Westchester County in the beginning of the 20th century. There's a man wandering around the woods outside the suburban borders of the town, known as the Leather Man. He had big plates of leather uh, self-designed clothing and a big pointy hat and furs hanging from his shoulders and a long staff. 
and he was very shy and very gentleman and very frightened of people who left food would leave food out for him and he had opted out he he just didn't want to um, have anything to do with society so my guys did the same thing they it was a a spectacularly bold move was called like emigration. They left the country and went into the house as, as another kind of country for them. And so my idea was to break and enter, to do some breaking and entering, <laughs> get into their minds, which really meant getting into my mind and uh, seeing what was going on there. I, I believe if I w- would say something about the real Collier brothers, that they did this to find meaning for themselves in their lives that they hadn't otherwise been able to manage. You talk about them, at one point, uh, they're talking about how um, they're the end of a long line that they've had, you know, generations of colliers have had wives, families, sons, daughters, and it's perpetuated on. And, and they're wondering whether they are not, instead of being a failure for not having done this, that they are the ultimate success of this kind of breeding experiment. Yeah, they did it better than anyone else, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> they managed to make the most of what they had without uh, changing what they were within. Yeah, they... Um the um, trouble I find is that uh, they're not quite out of my mind, even though the book is done, that I have a kind of hangover, uh, Collier Brothers hangover. They're still with me, and um, I really have to um, exercise them before I can get to work on something else. <laughs> you were saying, too, that, that, that in this novel, to find them, you had to look in yourself, and I'm wondering if... As you were pulling that language out of yourself, were you recreating yourself as one of them, as Homer? Well, I think I, um, pieces of me were in both guys, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, Langley has I like Langley's inventiveness. and mm-hmm. his, uh, He's very, a very active fellow in his madness. He's... he's uh, it's very American, that kind of manic inventiveness. And, you know... His, his almost anger to get out there. Yeah, and, and he was really looking for something mm-hmm. constantly and and uh, imagining this is it, no, this is not it, maybe something else. And, um, you know, it was Theodore Dreiser who nailed us all in Sister Carrie when he said uh, um, the reason Carrie is a successful actress is because she has a face that expresses the American longing for what they don't even know, that this is characteristic of all of us, that no matter what we have and who we are, we long for something else, and we don't even know what it is. <laughs> and we hope, though, that it's not an end of in blindness and uh, deafness. Now, this is an interesting direction to take your, your character, and it must have been difficult to, to write. Well, if you just see it as their story, uh, I suppose you're right. But um, one of the things I realized when the book was done was that it's, it's a, uh, there's a, a sense of um, the, there's an arc. There's an arc of, uh, what shall we call it, 
what do we call it when when the system of energy is dying down? Entropy. Exactly. That there's an arc of entropy in this book, and um, I don't want to. Um, I assiduously avoid speaking about its meaning. That that's for critics and readers mm -hmm. to uh, figure out. I mean, if the book is any good, it can sustain any number of interpretations. And the late critic Richard Poirier said, "Fiction, uh, a novel, by its very nature, is imponderable. Uh, it, it's um, it's not a scientific report. It's it's something else entirely." But it's more informative than a scientific report could possibly be, isn't it? Well, I like to think so. I've devoted my life to this particular discipline. Yes. <laughs> it would be a shame if, I, if it turned out to be uh, an illusion. Well, in, in a sense, you, it is a scientific report, but it's, it's a science that, in which the discipline is language and in which the, the intelligence is largely emotional. And exploratory, and and, and I, I again, I think there's a element of, of fantasy in creating these characters. It may very well be the uh, I take the position that stories are a, a, a form of knowledge. That, that the, the story is a system of knowledge. In fact, it's the first system that human beings ever had before there was anything else. Before they even writing, they had stories, and stories constructed the world, and, and uh, they were a way to pass knowledge on to the next generation, to connect the past with the present, the visible with the invisible, uh, and incidentally distributed the suffering mm -hmm. uh, so that it could be born, and uh, that is still the system. and. Uh, there's still a presumption in, ev in everyone who seriously writes and uh, commits to fiction that it is a system of knowledge uh, that really works. It, it it's a, a, a mythos. I mean, that's you, you uh, talked about that from the beginning. It's it's the these are our myths. These are our. This is this novel is the equivalent of woolly mammoths in the caves of. Uh, and under France, in some ways. Yeah. I didn't think of putting woolly mammoth in the book, however. That was a mistake. <laughs> One of the things you do, you do a couple really interesting things plot-wise, is you'll bring people in early, and we never know necessarily if they're going to come back or not. But Mary Reardon comes back, and the gangsters come back. Could you talk about creating these kind of uh, arcs within the book? It, they're almost like... A, Eddying, again, I'm getting back to the river. They're almost like little eddying whirlpools that kind of show up later on down the river. Well, um, um, I'm not sure that... I think I had a feeling that um, Vincent the gangster uh, would grow in, in stature from the 19th, uh, from the period of the speakeasies when... Homer meets him till uh, till the fifties when he appears in front of Senator Kefauver's committee in Congress with the investigation of, of uh, organized crime, which really was an investigation, and um, 
But I didn't really know that Vincent would reappear until, uh, well, what happens, the, uh, Langley brings some television sets into the home. <laughs> and they, they think about going on a quiz program because they know more than anybody else does. And then they decide they're not groomed. <laughs> Probably won't pass through the audition very well. And then... Um, then they consider the benefits of television entirely and decide that it's um, it's not for them. Um, I won't go into the detail, but I, I think that point Langley compares people watch television to the little shrunken heads. Oh, that's a great line. <laughs> hanging by uh, hair and, and the, this tribe in Latin and South America. It's their custom to shrink heads and hang them up on the branch. And he compares that to the American television audience. And he's right. But the last thing they do is, uh, and they watch the moon shot. They will, but before that, they almost accidentally hear Vincent's voice. When Homer hears a voice he recognizes. Sure enough, Vincent is testifying. And so I knew then he would eventually come back into the house as he does with his men after a piece of his ear is shot off in a restaurant. And uh, Mary Elizabeth Reardon, is, uh, I just love that character so much that I began to think of such purity and, and pure, beautiful innocence. What would happen to her that she would probably become a religious on, uh, in, uh, commit her life to service as a, as a nun and, and so that's what happens you know when you and were that's just speaking what the, what the uh, brothers find out about her the way you spoke just now about Mary Elizabeth Reardon it, it sounded it, it was Homer <laughs> well there it <laughs> you is you must have fallen in love there with your own character that's such yeah, an interesting well, <laughs> uh, uh I did, I did. She's, she was um, quite something. I mean, it's the it's the kind of person uh, that you meet really who is so uh, saintly that if she destroys any crude, carnal um, impulses that you may have. <laughs> it's like Joan of Arc whom I talk about in uh, the Book of Daniel. I've been speaking with E.L. Doctorow. His latest novel is Homer and Langley. Thank you for speaking with me, Edgar. It's my pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.